So I will remind you uh, where we've been in the book of Romans. So if this is your first time with us, we have been walking through uh, the book of Romans, looking to establish a foundation for this ministry. This is our first semester as Coram Deo Christian Fellowship. And we said that we want to establish this ministry on the gospel, that we will believe in gospel primacy that the message of the gospel should be at the core of who we are and what we do. And the book of Romans is really a comprehensive, systematic laying out of that gospel doctrine, right? And so it, and it gives us a firm foundation in who Jesus is, what is sin, what is redemption, right? It helps us understand that. And it and really does engage with issues that we are facing day in and day out because we are always engaging with issues of sin and issues of redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation. Romans tells us this. And then the, later on in the book of Romans, you'll say, well, then how do we live? How do we live as Christians? How do we live as those who have, as those who have experienced this grace of God in the gospel? First thing we looked out right at the gate is that the gospel, the message of the book of Romans is a revelation of the gospel of God. The gospel is of God, meaning he's the author. Forgiveness for sinners was God's idea. He thought it up, he put it into action, he defines it. We also said that the gospel, the good news, is of God, meaning that God himself is that good news. That his gracious character, his goodness, his righteousness is made known to us in the gospel. Then we said if the gospel is good news, then in order for it to be good news, it has to disrupt and sort of intervene and invade a bad situation. And the bad situation is the reality of human sinfulness, unrighteousness, and the inevitability of divine judgment. That we have all fallen short of God's righteous standards. And because of that, his righteous judgment, his wrath is inevitable. We can't escape it. And then last time we gathered, we looked at Jesus as this epiphany of righteousness. That Jesus comes into the world revealing not primarily the wrath of God, but the righteousness of God. And Jesus comes into the world as this second Adam, this one who is without sin, who perfectly obeys his father, as we said in the assurance of pardon. And he comes into the world as a revelation of God's righteousness. And he calls all to believe in him as the only substitute and savior for sinners. We talked briefly last time about justification by faith alone and particularly the doctrine, the doctrine of double imputation. Double imputation, what does that mean? Just quickly, imputation is to consider or to, to reckon. We talked about it as an accounting term where there's an accreditation of finance to someone it's placed into their account, even if they might not actually have it. And so we saw this great exchange in the gospel where our sin, our negative, our debt that we have accrued in our sin against God and our inability to uphold God's law perfectly, that debt is transferred upon Jesus. He receives it. He is counted as if he were a sinner, if he was a debtor. And then on the cross, he was put forward as a propitiation, as an atonement for sin. He paid the fine, the penalty 
for being a debtor to God in his death on the cross. And that's one aspect of the imputation where our sin is transferred into Jesus's account, if you will. But we also receive his righteousness, his perfect record of good works, his infinite measure of righteousness that he accrued in the flesh as a human in our place is transferred to us so that God looks at us and judges us and says righteous because he sees us through the imputed righteousness of Christ. We talked about that um, idea of justification and double imputation. And so today is just going to be a kind of a step forward on that same topic in Romans chapter four. Um, and what we'll see today is that this doctrine of justification by faith alone isn't anything new. Paul isn't bringing anything new to the picture. Christianity isn't anything ultimately new onto the scene. Um, and he'll take us as far back as Abraham in Romans chapter four and demonstrate that Abraham himself was justified by faith alone. And so just a little bit of context before we read the passage. Um, the Jewish objection to the gospel. So remember that this letter is being written to Christians in the first century, many of whom would be Jewish converts to Christ. Those who uh, were born and raised Jewish and believed that Jesus was the Messiah and placed their faith in him and follow him. But the biggest objection that the Jewish people had to the gospel was that this doctrine of grace overthrows the law. You'll see that at the end of chapter three. Um, we see that in, in chapter three, verse 31. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul then goes on to name the biggest name uh, in the Jewish world <laughs> to demonstrate that justification has always been by faith alone. Abraham, the biggest name. So if we were trying to prove something was American, right? We would say that's as, as American as apple pie, which I don't even think that's actually American. <laughs> you might say, look, George Washington believed this. George Washington did this or Thomas Jefferson, right? We would go back to the big names, to the, to the originators of our people. Paul does this in Romans chapter four. He goes back to George Washington. He goes back to Abraham and demonstrates that Abraham himself was justified by grace um, through faith. Uh, now, that is addressing the first century objection, the first century issue. Now, that's not necessarily our issue today. What is the issue that we need to latch onto in this passage? It's this, that the gospel is of God not of us. The gospel is of God, not of us. So just tuck that away in the back of your mind and, and we'll come back to that there. So uh, let's stand together as we uh, read God's word. And we're gonna read the whole chapter. And this is really the most important thing you'll hear me say all night because what we're doing is we're reading the literal word of God. And so receive it as such. This is God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you uh, implant this word upon our hearts, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. So the title, the title of this sermon is Father Abraham, have many sons. And uh, I know you're sad that we didn't sing that song. And uh, this, the night's not over yet. We may. Right arm, left arm. Yes, sir. Nope, I just mix it up. That's the Lord's army, right? But Father Abraham had many sons. The outline is something like this. Point one, the example of Abraham. 
Point two, the blessing of Abraham, and then the promise to Abraham and to his offspring and to his sons. So here, here we go. Uh, the first thing, the example of Abraham. Now, as we said, chapter three ends with the conclusion that since justification is by faith in Christ alone, it is available for both Jews and Gentiles. And because justification by faith alone, apart from works of law, there is no room for boasting, right? It, it, it sets this idea that, that we are justified based on nothing in us. In fact, chapter three says there is no one who is good. There is none who is righteous. And so if we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, we have no reason to boast. We have no reason to brag that maybe we are smarter than the next person or we are more humble than the next person. No, it is all the glory, all the boasting goes to God and God alone. And so with this established, Paul then goes in chapter four and he, he sets before us the, the greatest patriarch, the, the Jewish forefather, the, the uh, George Washington, right? He sets before us Abraham. In the first two verses, he says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Catch that, but not before God. Abraham could have been, and he was, a great man with many earthly reasons to boast, but not before God, right? He goes straight to Abraham. And then he shows us that Abraham believed God and it was counting, counted to him as righteousness. This is a very important passage. Um, Abraham believed God, is verse three, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, there are two key words in verse three there uh, that we need to talk about. Uh, the two words are believed, which is pistuo in the Greek, pistuo, and counted, logizomai. So believed and counted. Belief, uh, pistuo, is the verb form of the word faith, pistis in the Greek. And so think about it like this. By saying Abraham believed God, we could say in a way it's Abraham faithed God. He placed faith in God. He believed in God. And this belief, this faith in God was counted to him as righteousness. It was logizomide him as righteousness. So we talk about faith a lot as Christians, right? It's very central to our faith. <laughs> what is faith? What is this type of, uh, this, this pistis faith? Uh, which justifies? What is the type of faith that Abraham had that was counted to him as righteousness? When we look at justifying faith, what is it? Is it just belief that God exists? Is it just belief that Jesus was a historical figure? What is this kind of faith? Now, theologians throughout the centuries have sort of classified three elements of this true biblical justifying 
faith. And as, as most theology is, it's in Latin. So three Latin words. One is indicia, indicia. These are, this is the knowledge of the facts, knowledge of the content of what your faith is in, okay? So this would be things like knowledge of who Jesus is, knowledge of, hey, there's a God who created the world. Jesus is a son who took on flesh and lived among man and he died on the cross. This is knowledge of the facts. This is the indicia aspect of faith. You have to know something to believe something, right? The second element is a census, a census. And this is a sense. This is believing that the facts are true. Like I, I assent that this is true, a census. But that's not enough. We can't just say, yeah, I believe that Jesus was a historical figure. He was, he was crucified on a Roman cross and um, he might have even been resurrected on the third day. I believe that's true. Justifying faith is more than that. It's more than knowledge of the facts, it's more than indicia, it's more than a census, but it also includes fiducia. Fiducia, fiducia. Trust in, I can't say that word with my kids in the back because I know they're going to say, you said dookie. <laughs> Fiducia. This is moving beyond belief that it's true and moves into the realm of trust. Trust and application of the facts. Okay. The best example I, I can think of this or the best illustration would be a chair. Okay. So let's, let's, let's work through these three elements of justifying faith in this chair, okay? Num number one, I know this is a chair. I can tell by its forms, it has legs, it has cushions, it has a back, that this is a chair. I know that it was designed to be sat in, okay? Now, that's indicia. The ascensus is like, I believe that it actually is a chair, and that is, that is true. And that if I sat in that, it would do its job, right? The fiducia moves beyond that, and it is when I actually sit in the chair. When I place all my faith, all my trust, in that what I know about that chair is true, and it can hold me, and I'm going to sit in it. That is justifying faith in that chair. And so the type of faith that justifies us before God contains all three of those elements. It's not enough for you tonight to say God exists. He did something through his son, Jesus, and I believe that was true. You have to move beyond that point and actually put your trust in Christ. You have to forsake all of your righteousness. You have to forsake all confidence that you have in yourself to stand before God and be received as righteous. And you have to put all your hope in Jesus. You have to sit in the chair. So this is that pistuo. This is the, the believing. This is the, the type of faith that justifies. Now, what about the other key word? Counted, logizomai. Logizomai, this is that word imputed that we talked about last week or last time we gathered, uh, imputed. So if we rephrased verse three, it would say something like this. Abraham had faith in God and that faith was considered 
righteousness by God. See, Abraham possessed no righteousness of his own. No righteousness that would justify him before a holy God. But Abraham's belief, his faith in the promises of God was considered by God, was imputed to him, was credited to him as righteousness, as if he were righteous. Okay. This reminds us that justification is by grace alone. We see that uh, particularly in verses four through eight. It says, now, the, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of this blessing of whom of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He starts with this comparison of wages versus versus a gift. Right. He says the person who works, his wages aren't considered a gift. What would you do if you went to work and you put in your your hours for the week? And you go to your boss to get your pay, you know, your paycheck. And then he says, here, here's a gift. You're like, this is not a gift. I earned this. I worked for this. This is my due. Like, you don't give me this paycheck. We're going to have trouble. Right. We'll call Judge Judy up in here. Right. The one who works, his wages are not a gift, but his due. Right. It's what is owed to him. And Paul says, this is not the case with Abraham and God. This is not the case with you and God. God is not rewarding you with justification, with eternal life, with salvation based upon your wages that are due to you. It is a gift. It is something free. Later, we'll see in chapter six that the actual wages that you have earned is death. Romans chapter six says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And so you don't want what is due to you from God. You want a gift. And so we can't consider justification as something that is earned. Rather, it is a gift. It is grace. Then he says um, that the one who does not work, but believes in him, listen to this, who justifies the ungodly who justifies the ungodly. That is the case. Justification is about God justifying the ungodly. We talked about the phrase from Luther, uh, simul justice et peccator. Simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously just and sinner. The message of the gospel is that me, Clint, is at the same time a sinner and justified. Right. And we talked about the controversy within the, the Roman Catholic Church and the whole Protestant Reformation was, is Luther calling God a liar? Because God looks at me and says, justified, although I am a sinner. And says, no, this is the idea of imputation because my sin isn't counted to me. It isn't imputed to me. It's imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to me. And so um, that is the, the message of, of the gospel. His faith is counted 
as righteousness. Faith is the conduit that receives the righteousness of Christ. It is, if you were, it's the, it's the way to um, obtain the righteousness of Christ. It's, it's the, it's the um, you know, so Elijah's, you know, cryptocurrency guy, right? It's the digital wallet. You've got to have like a wallet to access cryptocurrency. You can't just get it. You can't just, well, I guess they got these kiosks at the gas station now. But you've got to have them access. You've got to have means to get that currency, right? Faith is that means of receiving the righteousness of Christ. It is what God gives us um, in order to justify us. So then he moves on and demonstrates really that Abraham wasn't the only big name, if you will, in redemptive history to experience the blessing of justification, justification sola fide, by grace alone. He moves on to talk about David. You know, there's, that's another big name to move to, um, David. David speaks of this blessing of non-imputation. The blessing of non-imputation, that's uh, this verses seven and eight are actually a quotation of Psalm 32, verses one and two. Um, and so it says this, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord will not count his sin. The word count there is logizomai. It's will not impute. In fact, that word counted is used, I think, eight times in this chapter. And so he's saying that there is a happiness, a blessedness, as the word markarios, which is the idea of happiness, True happiness comes to those who know that their sins are forgiven, who know that their transgressions, that their sin will not be counted against them. It won't be held against them. There's non-imputation of your own sin to yourself, right? There's a happiness that comes from that, a freedom that comes from that. And, and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know this that you know that you have been riddled with the guilt and shame of whatever sin is in your past. Whatever like is living in the back of your mind that just won't let you rest because you know you're defiled. You know you're unclean. You know that you don't measure up, that you fall short. And it's crippling and it's depressing. But then the gospel comes in and says, that is not held against you. That sin is not imputed to you. It's not counted to you. God doesn't consider that sin against you. It was placed upon his son, Jesus, who propitiated God's anger and wrath and judgment. So why do you hold it against yourself? God doesn't hold it against you. And you feel that weight of forgiveness. You feel that blessedness of knowing that that sin is not held against you. And then you can get out from under the weight of it, right? David spoke of this in Psalm 32, and, and Paul says that's the same faith, that's the same justification that Abraham had and that you and I have. It's the same gospel. So then, put yourself in the mind of a skeptical first century Jew. Put yourself in the, in the mind of a skeptical first century Jew, and you're trying to follow on, you're investigating this Christianity thing, at this point, he's, he's demonstrated his point by showing you Abraham. He's talked about David. 
You might be saying something like, okay, Paul, I see your point. God justifies his people through faith, but his people are Jews. His people are the ones who have been circumcised, who have received the covenant of circumcision. And essentially, in verse 9, Paul's going, I'm glad you asked. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And I'm just going to take a side note right here just to do some instructive things for you. When you're evangelizing, when you're having gospel conversations with uh, your classmates or whoever it may be, you should be thinking of what their objections to what you're saying are. You should be thinking, they're hearing this. Here's the objection they probably have. And you, you get there before they do. That's exactly what Paul does through the entire book of Romans. He's like, you might be thinking this. And you're like, yeah, I was thinking that. And then he, he demonstrates that. So that's something to keep in mind when you're sharing the gospel, when you're uh, really interacting with unbelievers, is what are their objections? And, and how can I demonstrate to them that, that I know what they're thinking and it really isn't a problem? End of that side note. So how does Paul do that here? Verse nine, he, he moves into really a question of the timing of Abraham's justification. When was Abraham justified? When was his faith counted to him as righteousness? Was it before or after the covenant of circumcision? And if you know your Bible, you know the answer to this. Maybe you're not familiar with Genesis and I'm going to help you out here. The phrase Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness comes from Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, God gives his promise to Abraham. Abraham believes the promise and God sees that faith and counts it to him as righteousness. Circumcision and the covenant of circumcision was given in Genesis chapter 17. So the question is, when was righteousness imputed to Abraham? Before or after he was circumcised? Before or after he did a work of law? Before or after he became a Jew, if you will? It was before. It was before. And so then he moves to the next objection. Well, if, it was, if he was justified, if he was counted righteous before he was circumcised, then what was the whole point of circumcision, Paul? Why be circumcised if you're already justified? And he moves on to tell us that. Verse 11, the first half of this, he says, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It was a seal of the righteousness that he already had. The seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It was a seal, a proof, a tangible sign. It's a proof of the promise. So what, so what is a seal? You know, in, in the ancient days, a, a decree from a king, a covenant document, if you will, would be sealed with a wax seal and the king would stamp his ring into it. And it's basically a way of, you know, signature, if you will, that would show that it's legitimate, that the word of the king is behind this document. That there's, there's proof. Just like when you sign the dotted line on uh, a loan or something like that, you're signing that you will 
accomplish what you've promised to do. Circumcision is that seal. It's God signing his name on the dotted line saying, Abraham, I've promised to make you the father of many nations. This covenant of circumcision is my signature. It's my signet ring stamped upon the wax to remind you that what I say is true and I will bring about my promise. How does circumcision do that? We talked about this several weeks ago. Circumcision, that's a weird thing to talk about, especially after you just had dinner. <laughs> Why circumcision? Why is that such a big deal in the Jewish world? Well, it was proof of a promise. What was the promise? It was the promise of offspring. So it's no coincidence that circumcision is a sign on the sexual organ. So track it with me. Every time Abraham is reminded of his sexual organ, he's reminded that God has promised him offspring. A hundred year old man is reminded that he will have offspring, right? This is God reminding him. There's also the element that the scripture picks up on, on the reality of being cut off due to covenant breaking and the curse. Jesus is, has his circumcision on the cross where he's cut off, right? There's that aspect of well, but primarily what we're looking at here is, the, re, is the, the reality of a promised seed, a promised son, a promised offspring. And circumcision was a sign of that. So one aspect, one reason why circumcision was to be that seal. Now, the, the second aspect is given to us in the second half of verse 11 and in verse 12. It says, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So we say, he received the sign of circumcision to be the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And it's already well known that Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, right? It's his offspring, it's his family, he's that patriarch. And so he's the father of the circumcised, but also the uncircumcised, of Gentiles, because he was justified by faith. So everyone who shares in that faith of Abraham, who believes in the same promises of God, like you and I believe in, that Abraham believed in, he, we could say Abraham is our father in this way. So he's the father of the faithful Gentiles, but also the faithful Jews who were circumcised in the flesh, but also share in the belief that Abraham had. Jesus had this interaction with the Pharisees who, who were sort of boasting that they had Abraham as their father, right? Abraham is our father. Mind you, Jesus had just told them that their father was the devil. <laughs> he says, no, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus is like, I, I can raise up offspring of Abraham from these rocks. He says, if you were Abraham's offsprings, you would do the works that he did. So in other words, you can be an a offspring of Abraham according to the flesh, but not be a true son of Abraham because you don't share in the faith of Abraham. Right? So there is this belief that's very common in evangelicalism, this idea that the Jewish people, even today, are, are so, somehow saved because of their ethnicity. That because they are offsprings of Abraham, 
that they have a special status before God. And the more extreme uh, proponents of this would say that we shouldn't even evangelize Jews. Um, but Jesus himself stood in the midst of an entire generation of Jews, being a Jew himself, saying, you must be born again. And if you don't believe in me, you have no life in you, right? And so um, they're not all who are Israel are Israel, we see in Romans 9. And so you can, Abraham is the father of the faithful, whether Jew or Gentile. And circumcision and the timing of it all is significant in that. Now, the blessing of Abraham that David speaks of here, if you think back to the blessing of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, it was always bigger than Abraham himself. It was always bigger than Abraham and his family, according to the flesh. The, the blessing of Abraham was to be a blessing to all nations, right? Uh, Genesis 12, verses two and three, God says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the whole point of God entering into covenant with Abraham was to bless every family on the earth, to bless every tribe and language nation through the family of Abraham. And so this blessing of Abraham was always to be extended to the nations, to the Gentiles, not just the Jews alone. And so, so far we've looked at the example of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham, and now finally we'll look at the promise given to Abraham and to his offspring, which include those of us who believe in Christ. It's God's plan to glorify his own name through the redemption of sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he will bring it to pass. No one can thwart his plan, not even our failures. So if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you see this reality over and over again, that God has a purpose in history. He has a purpose for his people and he is determined to bring it about no matter how many times his own people fail. No matter how many times his own people even rebel and attempt to thwart his plan. It, it cannot be done, it will not be done because God is determined to bring about his own glory. We'll read this in, in verses 13 and 14. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, listen, and the promise is void. Basically what he's saying here is if God's promise to bless the nations, to save the world, if his promise depended on our keeping of law, our doing of good works, we would fail, which means that God's promise would fail. You see? 
if God's promise to Abraham depended upon our works of law, in our failing, ultimately the promise of God would fail. God would be made a liar. And so doesn't that sort of magnify the significance and the importance of holding to justification, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone? Because what we're doing is we're saying, God cannot lie. <laughs> and if salvation depended upon our works, the promise would be void. Faith would be null. And that's not the case. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the reality that justification depending upon faith and the promise resting on grace is a guarantee to you? It's a guarantee to all his offspring? Why? Because it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon the surety of God's promise. It depends upon his sovereignty and his own determination to bring about his own glory. And that's a sure thing. That's a guarantee thing. That is a promise to, to just grip, to hold on to, because it is sure. And so the passage, chapter four, really ends with um, kind of looking at this promise given to Abraham. And it, it does two things. It looks at the impossibility of the promise to Abraham. It's like how crazy this promise was, but then also the nature of Abraham's faith in that promise. And then he says that essentially that is our faith as well, that this is nothing new, this is us. What we're going to do is we're going to consider that. The, we're going to consider the impossibility of the promise to Abraham and the nature of his faith. So first, the impossibility of the promise. Verse 17 and following, it says, um, well, I'm in the wrong place. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into ex existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he had considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. Let's think about the impossibility of this promise. He says, Abraham's considered that his body was as good as dead. God had promised him a son. And not just a son, but offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, like sand upon the seashore. And yet he's 100 years old. His body is as good as dead. And then he also considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now this word barrenness is literally the word deadness. So Abraham's body was as good as dead, Sarah's womb was dead. 
It's necrosis. Her womb was dead. So how in the world is he supposed to become the father of many nations? When his body is as good as dead and his wife's womb is dead. God promised that's how. And he believed, and we'll see the nature of his faith, he believed that God is the God who created ex nihilo, out of nothing. That God called into existence everything that does exist from nothing. I don't think that's insignificant. When God says, I will make your descendants like the stars in the sky. Look to the heavens. So God says, you see all this? You see all these billions and billions of stars? There was a time in which they didn't exist. There was nothing. And I spoke, I gave my word, and they into being came, as the song we sing says. It'll be that way with you, Abraham. Right now, your wife's womb is dead. You're an old man. There is, your, your closest heir is your servant. But I call into existence the things that are not. So Abraham believed that this is God. He creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. It says that he hoped against hope. What does that mean? That's like a weird phrase. You hope against hope. What does that mean? This means this. Abraham had every reason to believe that it was impossible for him to have children. Every reason to believe that. But he hoped against all those reasons. Why? Because God had promised. And the word of God trumps all those other reasons. And so he hoped against hope. His circumstances didn't weaken his faith. So what are the circumstances in your life where you're tempted to doubt the promise of God? What are the things where it seems like the odds are stacked against you, but God has promised otherwise? Where do you feel enslaved and where do you feel dead? But God has promised to give you life there. Abraham's circumstances didn't weaken his faith. In fact, his faith was strengthened, it says, as he gave glory to God. His faith was strengthened in worship. And so when we acknowledge who God is, when we give him thanks and give him praise and give him glory, that is the means by which he strengthens our faith. So where is your faith weak? Where is your faith weak? And you give God glory in that space. Where your faith is weak, you give God glory in that space and he will strengthen your faith. Where do you need to give thanks for something you're unwilling to give thanks for? That is the place where God will give life into what is dead. It says that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to fulfill his promise. And Abraham went through a lot. And we look through the story of his life and there's places where we say, that seems to be kind of weak faith. 
right? He does the whole deal where he, you know, has Ishmael, Hagar, that whole deal that, that kind of went bad. Um, you have the deal where, um, you know, he, he lies about his wife. There's all these situations where it seems like Abraham is having a hard time trusting the promise of God. Or is it like this? He believes the promises of God, but he isn't yet sanctified to the point that he understands it. And there's a mixture of his flesh in that faith. I think it's that because I think that that's me. I believe the promises of God, but I'm also still a little too stupid to just give it all to God. That I try to be crafty and clever in my own ways of dealing with my own sin. I try to hold on to my own strength, try to hold on to some of my own righteousness rather than giving it all to God and saying, no, I am as good as dead. And if God doesn't fulfill his promise to me, I will completely fail. So you're probably like me. You're probably like Abraham in that regard, that there is a whole mixture of sin in your faith. But if there is faith, God doesn't hold it against you. He doesn't impute that sin to you. So that one day when God writes the history book of your life, he won't look at all your failures and say, yep, weak faith, weak faith, weak faith. He says, no, Abraham was a man of faith. Think about your life like that. God isn't looking at your life under a microscope, ready to pounce on every example of weakness. He looks at you as a child. And he looks at you through the lens of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that should stir you on to confidence that God is able to fulfill his promise in and through and to you. And as we close, we'll, we'll look at verses 22 through 25. And we'll see that Abraham modeled faith for Christians. He modeled faith for those who would live centuries after him. Verses 22 through 25, it says, That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, Craig Keener is a commentator. He says, Abraham modeled faith, not simply abstractly, but by believing in a promised seed and in resurrection. Let me say that again. This is key. You might want to wake up. This is important. Abraham modeled faith, not simply abstractly, not just so we could put him up on a, a poster in Sunday school and say, be like Abraham. He modeled faith in a specific way by believing in a promised seed and in resurrection. How so? A promised seed. God promised him a son. He promised him an offspring. And that son was ultimately Isaac, according to the flesh. But beyond Isaac, it was ultimately Jesus. We see this in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
So Paul in Galatians says the offspring that Abraham believed in, that was counted to him as righteousness, was ultimately Christ. He is that offspring. And, and all those who are in Christ are the ones who received that blessing and received that promise. So he believed in Jesus, the promised seed. And he also believed in resurrection. Abraham was as good as dead in his own strength and ability. Sarah's womb was dead. The barrenness, there was necrosis. Now, we need to explain a little bit of the biblical worldview before we, to really get this. The womb in the Bible has a close connection with the ground, the earth. Uh, it's this place of fertility, fruitfulness, where life comes from the ground. Life comes from the womb. There's an intimate connection with the earth and the womb and the biblical worldview and in the, in the mindset of those who would have heard this. The womb or the earth can be fertile, bringing life, but it can also be the place of the dead. Sarah's womb was as good as a tomb. Yet Abraham believed that God could and bring life from that grave, from this place of deadness, this place of necrosis. Abraham believed that God could and would bring life to it. And the Christian faith is essentially that, that the offspring of Abraham was delivered to death for our sins, that he spent three days and nights in a tomb in the womb of the earth. And on the third day, God raised him to life for our justification. And that all who have faith, who have pistis, all who believe this gospel message meaning that you have the indicia, the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done, the ascensus, you believe that it is true and you have the fiducia, you trust it. And you've put all your hope in Christ and Christ alone, forsaking all confidence in your own righteousness. If you've done this, if you have this faith, you will be saved. You can stand before God, not under the condemnation which your sin deserves, not under the, the wages that you are due, but in complete freedom, forgiveness and justification. And you will know the blessedness of the non-imputation of your sin. This is it. That, that is our message. That is the gospel. But you have to hear this as well. If you reject this message, Every last transgression will be imputed to you. It will be counted against you. Most supremely, the sin of despising God's free offer of grace. And this is the most damnable of heresies, damnable of blasphemies. So don't harden your heart toward Christ and his gospel. Turn to Jesus. Die to yourself and then you will find resurrection life in Christ. See, it's so much better to receive the non-imputation non of your sin in Jesus. You can walk out these doors with a clean conscience. You can walk out this door, as we'll see next time we gather, with peace with God. You will walk out of these doors knowing that your Father in heaven is not looking to pounce on you for every mistake you made. 
but he's pleased with you. He loves you. And he's given you an inheritance of the world. And so as we leave tonight, as believers in this message, believers of Christ and the gospel, when we go into the world and we live Coram Deo before the face of God, we have to have this message of forgiveness of sins, justification by faith alone, by grace alone at the foundation, because that gives us freedom to actually live in this world so that you can enjoy the beauty of creation. You can enjoy your job. You can enjoy even your classes in a different way because you have peace with God. And that maybe he's given you those classes so that you might know him better. And you might enjoy the world better. And that you might have life and life more abundantly. You see, when your conscience is clear, you're able to live in a world that is God's world, who is your father, who is pleased to give you all things. Rather in a world that is against you, under a God who is against you. It's free. And so we can walk out these doors tonight and live Coram Deo free because of the justifying grace of God. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you that we have experienced this grace. All of those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we thank you that we can leave here with a clean conscience. And we thank you that salvation is totally according to your good purpose and will, and that you're you have promised and you won't fail in delivering. God, we've confessed to you over and over again that we often fail. And if it depended on us, we would fail and have no hope. But Christ has not failed. He is conquering king. He is a righteous son. He's the firstborn of all things. And we trust him and we are uh, pleased to follow him and to confess him as Lord. And we pray your blessing on our time as we continue to worship and as we uh, seek to apply this word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.